You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. The Rewilding Institute is partnered with Be Wild Rewild, which has provided funding for mapping and telling the story of the potential for rewilding in the upper Mississippi River watershed. The entire watershed is a very large area of the Midwest United States, covering 32 states and a mind-boggling number of rivers and tributaries. To start such an ambitious project, we focus on a study area that includes Iowa, Wisconsin, Missouri, and neighboring states that hold pieces of the Luss Hills, the Driftless, and the Ozark Plateau. Named Big River Connectivity, this is a large piece of the Mississippi River watershed puzzle and has at its core focus these four C's, cores, corridors, crossings, and coexistence. Challenges to providing meaningful progress on these four C's are not the usual challenges faced by other rewilding network designs. Here we are dealing with one of the most human-altered states in the country, Iowa, which brings new challenges working with farmers and private landowners, rather than starting with large cores of protected public lands. The main goals initially are to stop farming on grades steeper than 9 degrees, as well as floodplains and buffers around rivers and streams to strengthen connectivity provided almost exclusively by waterways. My guest today is Mark Edwards. Mark is a leader in Be Wild Rewild and its Big River Connectivity Project. He was raised a self-described military brat, a nomad bouncing back and forth across the oceans searching for a home. After college, his Thoreau experiment of living in a shack with no running water by the river continued for 17 years. He retired after 30 years leading restoration efforts within the Iowa Department of Natural Resources and is still pursuing being naturalized while maintaining his river residency for 60 years. My name is Mark. I was raised in the military, so we lived all over the world. I moved from Japan uh, in Tokyo, actually a big city, to a small city, uh, Sergeant Bluff. I think we had 32 people in our graduating high school class. It was quite a transition for me, but it was on the edge of the Lus Hills. And so I was quickly skipping school, learning to hunt, trap, those kinds of things, and moving up into those hills. And I was the first time, boy, my parents had given me the freedom to just kind of live out there. And that started everything. And then a personal uh, experience happened uh, that really transformed my life because I I was uh, there in the late spring and frogs began to hatch out of that Lus Hills. And they're actually a toad and they were fairly large and there were thousands of them. And as they would hatch and come out of those hills and come down to the highway, they were so thick to the highway, they were so thick on the highway I remember seeing a car slide on their backs of them over into the ditch, and this is in the dark, and it's raining heavily, and the headlights go down into the ditch, which is, puts the headlight underwater, and you could still see all these frogs everywhere. I mean, it was like biblical uh, transformation for me, and it scared me. Uh, I wasn't used to things like that. And so I ended up uh, kind of killing a lot of frogs uh, just out of fear. And so uh, that transformed me and I had to start dealing with that. And at 
during that period transforms into going to college, going to follow in the steps of my father, career military person. And then it's the sixties and I end up trying to uh, go to prison because I refused to go to the uh, war and that transposed into finally uh, the lottery. I ended up graduating from college, I was reading uh, Thoreau, and uh, I was reading about the cabin, and there, I found a cabin right after I graduated over on the Des Moines River. And it didn't have any electricity and running water. And I thought, well, you know, I'm gonna try this for a, a summer. So I moved over there in the spring, and I don't know, it was another real monumental change for me. I ended up um, 17 years later, still there. I put in electricity. Uh, I, but it was a transformation for me to learning to uh, the 60s kind of live off the land. And so uh, the particular landowner I was with had well over a thousand acres there, nothing but cows on it and timber along that river. And I had free reign. And so I was learning to learn what plants I can eat. And that's how I learned to learn my plants. And then I began to become captivated by all the wildlife uh, around me. And this led to, uh, I was doing construction and I would save up my money and pretty soon I would take off and travel, uh, mostly North America, Canada, Central America, and then I would come back. And so that led to a summer job at the state park, which was just north of me a couple miles. And I ended up there for 30 years, uh, moving through various positions and ended up with an office down in the central office at the Capitol. And I became a very successful grant writer and the focus of my grant began with trails, but it immediately went to restoration, interpretation and writing grants for those and getting those programs up and running, which had not been happening in that state for almost 40 years. So uh, it was fun to be hands working all the time, except in the winter, I would get trapped in that cubicle. But then I learned that's when I would take my vacation. I would go to the Everglades and down uh, in the Yucatan area. And so I had a really fortunate way of growing up and getting attuned to where I lived. And it was very important for me to dig in where I live because of that past history of moving around as a child and your friends changing everything. So I decided I wasn't going to move anymore. And I've been living here since 1964. I'm still uh, just in the throes of realizing how wild it is where I live. And yet, where I live is the most biologically altered state in North America. We've converted roughly 98% of the state for human needs, uh, farming, mostly roads, highways, agricultural kind of things like that. And so I feel like I've been really lucky. I have uh, numerous friends that I still maintain uh, visiting. One lives on Vancouver Island. And so, I, for example, and so I get to go to these places still, but I really uh, like teasing him in particular going, well, wait, you left Iowa. This is the front lines. So if we don't figure it out here, where are we going to figure it out? I mean, he wanted to go somewhere where there, there was something left. And I have a lot of friends that did that. But it became clear to me that I can go visit those places. It's like going to a wilderness area. But really, the wildness is about more my relationship to my place wherever I am. And so I've really uh, come to love Iowa very, very deeply. And I think I love it a lot because of what's been done to it in a very short amount of time. And yet I see a potential there uh, that I don't see other places. And I think that's really how I got into the Be Wild, Rewild. And so here I am with the rewilding, uh, connecting up with the people I know. And so I met 
Roger Ross Gipple through this process and we kind of formed a partnership. And uh, Ross was extremely important in my life at that time because he was very challenging to me. We both agreed on, we were following rewilding and knew the Wildlands Network and we had read most all the same book network and we had read most all the same books. And so there was this deep uh, understanding of the language of each other, but we came from past histories a whole different way. His was a local agricultural uh, business uh, and here's mine, you know, trying to work with all the different environmental organizations, trying to learn every plant, species, all that kind of level. And between the two of us, I think we challenged each other tremendously. And that's, uh, I think, what really uh, captures the be wild, rewild ethic that we're trying to do. We, we are, we're both trying to learn how to be wilder and what rewilding means. And I'm, I'm, it's changed me tremendously. I just keep reading and reading going, I've read most of this stuff before, but how do I apply that to my own thinking about, uh, I don't have to go to wilderness area anymore. And I used to go a lot and well, I'm supposed to go up to, I still love those places. I still find them interesting, but I have never been in a wilder place in one sense of the word than I am where I live now in Iowa. And I'm surrounded by corn and beans. I mean, two thirds of this state is covered in two annual species. It's absolutely mm -hmm. frightening how that green curtain and what's frightening is how people look at it and see that as a, a green is a healthy thing. On the national level, what was being addressed was wilderness areas. Where do, where do we have stuff that's left? Where can we work with uh, these big areas and these, uh, you know, species that really stand out like wolverines and stuff like that? And so, you know, I, I realized that pretty quickly that, wait, I'm living in one of the major uh, flows of genetic material across North America in the Mississippi watershed. And so, and so that became more uh, appealing to me. You know, I, I could do it through certain species, say for uh, the, the sandhill cranes. But really what's become fascinating to me is ticks. And ticks uh, are an expanding uh, species and they are the grizzly bears of Iowa. And people have, again, figure <laughs> of these things, you know, we fear of mosquitoes, fear of, of these things. And I think that fear has determined a lot about our environmental movement, just as, you know, the panda represents the environment or something. And until we move past that shallow view of things, you know, how do we appreciate all the species that are out there because they do serve something in this relationships that really affect our lives. And so, you know, we're talking about pollinators gone now. And I, you know, boy, I, I see it all the time. I'm used to, I remember having to get out and clean my radiator off because it'd fill up with bugs and clean the windshield every time you drove somewhere. You'd have stopped the gas station. Boy, I don't clean my windshield anymore. You know, I, in fact, I'm terrified. I do a big garden and, you know, I don't have enough pollinators to pollinate the things out there that I need pollinated. Under all the lights, there used to be, swarms of bugs or there aren't bugs but i'm more excited about how do we raise this awareness how do we get past this fear and start working at you know what's kind of world do we want to live in and i think you know as you get older most of the people i know you know are, are 
becoming quite depressed. And the yeah. COVID has, has added to that because we're kind of locked down having to face where we live. We're not able to jump in the car and go to Casablanca or wherever people want to go to the wilderness areas. And so we've had to start reevaluating what it is in our life that's important for me. And so when I really learned that you could go out to a pasture and if you just quit putting cows on it and you just quit farming, there's all the proceeds still there. It would come back up. It's just like once I learned that step of rewilding was letting go and not controlling and not worrying about having to put all my energy into restoring, which I did. I spent my whole career building, you know, teams all over the state doing all kinds of restoration work. And now I realize that, you know, they were great and that restoration is very important. But at the same time, the scale that needs uh, appreciated and looked at long term is so much bigger than all the little public areas that we have to do this restoration work on. And so on that scale, I really want to see us understand that what rewilding has to offer. And right now we're having a discussion in Iowa about carbon sequestering. And we're talking about, I see all over there planting a million trees. Well, we don't have the resources ourselves. Things will happen by themselves to a large degree. And then we can go back and talk about restoration. But right now, we need to uh, really focus on how to let go of trying to control every single inch. And so that's that's my quest. How do we have a conversation about having a world that's healthy for all of us, all the other species that are out there? And how do we talk in economic terms about this? Because that seems to be the struggle right now. Everything is looked at through this economic lens. If we can't use it for our purposes, it has little value. I got to go back to the wildest place in the world. You don't even okay. know this, but I just checked while you were talking and we're presently. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. For purposes, it has little value. I gotta go back to the wildest place in the world. You don't even okay. know this, but I just checked while you were talking and we're presently pranking the rest of the world. Uh, in Encosia, Ecosia, which is a really cool search engine, it plants trees with its ad revenue uh, every time you do a search. Um, and that's been verified. We've checked it out. It's really cool. So I use that for every search that I possibly can. And in that search, when I put in the wildest place in the world, which is the title of your recent article at rewilding.org. Yes. And we'll talk about uh, we got to delve in further. You live in Iowa and you're calling it the wildest place in the world. You touched on it, but we have to go further. But I just wanted to tell you, you're number one. So like if somebody's looking for like a school <laughs> paper or something else and they're in their mind, they're looking for the wildest place in the world. And you're coming up with your article at rewilding it. And you're talking about Iowa. I just did talking about Iowa. I just it just tickles me. The harder search engine to get ranked in is Google, and we're already at number nine. So we're on the front page of Google for the wildest place in the world. <laughs> the irony is too much, isn't it? It's, it's delicious because somebody's going to look at that and go, okay, there's a different way. Because that's a that's a 101 level search, right? Somebody wants to know a basic 
what is very subjectively uh, the wildest place in the world. Not always, if you just do biodiversity or there's a lot of different parameters, but they're, they're asking a one-on-one question for this picture, <laughs> your picture of this river for Iowa to show up in the top 10 kills me, just kills me. <laughs> uh, we need to talk about that a little bit more because I love the way that you actually defended that in your article. Like, what, what do you mean by Iowa being the wildest place in the world? You know, having traveled all over, especially to wilderness areas and spending long periods, you know, you get old. If I was just aware of this, it's magical world out there. It's you know, incredible. I'm sitting in Iowa, the most biologically altered state in North America. When I first started saying this and doing my analysis of land use in Iowa, I almost got fired from the dealer for saying these kinds of things. And now I heard, I heard all over. And I think it's wonderful. It's one of the opening statements that our people are, are now using to talk about here, where we live. And so what I had to do is I had to put it in a larger context. I said, okay, I live in the most biologically altered state, 36 million acres. But I also am living in the highest extinction rate in human history. And that's happening. That's the larger context. You know, I had to deal with that in terms of the depression and the, oh my God, the world's dying in front of me. And you know, how are we going to make it better? And then you get goal oriented. Well, after my 30 years in the DNR and seeing the history of environmental organizations transform my life. And that was that first vision coming out about Wild Earth and Dave Foreman. And, you know, it was just a worldview that just it broke through all this other stuff and and yeah rewilding that's what we do that's that's mm. the point here and that's what spoke to me was that wildness and and so as my relationship grows to place and i think this would be true of just about anybody anywhere as that relationship deepens with the the natural world around you it becomes the wildest place in the world because that's where you are and so um you know, in that larger context, I had to get through that depression part. And I realized, you know, I'm looking at it too short. I'm looking at it in a short view. And I need to look at it. The story, you know, I always like is I learned on that prairie. Once you got the cows out there, the prairie came back pretty quick, you know. And, and it was amazing. We, we, we were cutting cedars out to uh, invasive species in the prairie. And we're cutting them out. And within a year or two, here come prairie right underneath that dense dark hadn't had light for years kind of thing and so you realize that power of the wildness is there and I there was a book I read quite a while back you know what happens if there aren't humans here and it was saying boy within a short amount of time you know all these domesticated pets pets are going to get eaten you know the, the people are going to disappear on a large scale and there's going to be a rewilding that we can't comprehend now, people are really buying into the global climate change. To me, that's kind of just a sidebar that gets people off the hook that thinks that, well, we can do something. We can turn this around. And I've kind of had to give up on that kind of thinking. I'm not the linear kind of thinking that I used to be. I'm not thinking it's not about solving this stuff. It's what's right. Well, what's the health, healthiest thing I can do for myself and for the world? What's the healthiest way to have a world where we all can get along and, and, and go on. <laughs> and that includes all the other species. So I have a strong commitment to frogs because of what I told you. I, I like to put myself, I want to speak for the frog 
that's who that's what my goal is is i you know to step beyond just my human perspective and say you know what would the frogs say what would the ticks say you know what we always go to these other species that beautiful or something and i've really come to love the tick <laughs> and i've had uh lyme's disease a number of times now and been in the hospital so i can tell you it was a real transformation <laughs> from from that tick well i'm, I'm still trying to, to to get it solid in my head what a brochure like a world wildlife fun brochure with a panda on it only for <laughs> iowa it, wildlife fun brochure with a panda on it only for <laughs> iowa it would be a tick and i think I think everything about Iowa is, it wouldn't be a tick, but it would be funny if it was, right? It's a pattern interruption. Everything about talking about Iowa and rewilding is a major pattern interruption. And for those of you who are just joining this type of discussion, we're talking about one of the most important areas in the Mississippi watershed, 32 different states, countless tributaries um, throughout this giant, giant region. The region's so big that we don't have to say excluding Alaska. For the first time that we've ever been talking about a wildland, you know, project, a wildland network design, uh, we don't have to leave that big chunk of, of North America out this time because we are on par with Alaskan-sized conservation <laughs> for the first time in the lower 48. The thing that I think is wild about it is that if, if in a place like Iowa, that is the number one test for rewilding that has not been done in many places around the world that have similar situations. If you really want to go for it, if you really believe in rewilding and that it's power uh, to, to do the thing that we all desperately want more of, boy, there wouldn't be very many places in the world to start better than Iowa, right? Yeah. And I, uh, I heard a quote yesterday that I think tied this all together. Asked this guy about what about farming, he's a farmer and everything. And his definition of the dirt was it holds up the plants. And I that really got me because he's probably thinking corn and beans, you know. And mm -hmm. so I, but I got to thinking about that and our way of understanding wildness, you know, here in Iowa, especially in this agricultural area you know, it's in the world. Okay. And that soil is the basis of everything. So in Iowa, as much biological diversity as the Amazon, if not more. And so here was this grassland uh, thing that was just incredible production of species. And it's the soil's still there. Now we're working hard trying to kill the soil, but all wildness everywhere is dependent on the soil. As I started looking at it that way, I started realizing, wait, I really am in the wildest place. And we have the best dirt, the best soil in the world here. In terms of restoration, we couldn't have a better medium to begin with than that soil. Uh, you know, it was all mountains and, and remote areas and unproductive for human use areas that we focused on because we said, well, that's what's left. But in another way, no, what's left is this soil. You mentioned something here, um, the difference between wilderness and a lot of our wilderness is rocks and ice. You know, we, we were able to gain such acreage um, with the Wilderness Act and, and uh, all the advocacy uh, because we were going after places that couldn't be farmed, couldn't be drilled. You know, it was easier. There were fewer stakeholders in our way to getting those places right. protected. 
here you've got every stakeholder you can imagine in the way of <laughs> and, and not really in the way because there's a lot of conservation minded people yeah. in Iowa. And that's one of the misunderstandings about this area is that everybody just right. depending on who you're talking to hates nature. Look what they did to their state. They hate nature. Right. And it's not actually true. There are a lot of people just like you out there fighting and, 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 and making uh, connections. And the agriculture, you know, is, is a great example of using, whether it's a city, a road, you know, wherever else we're using the land. You know, agriculture is, is a good thing because to understand it, because it's, it's simplified down to a few species. And what do those few species do? How do they fit into they fit into the system of where we eat. Well, you in one way, you can have those wild, wilder areas because we're just going to intensely farm this area, you know? And so, uh, you know, farmers who are doing that, I think are conservationists. They're trapped in a system, much like all of us are trapped in a system of this exploitation and conversion of things from the natural into something else that we humans focus, think is that's the important part. And so I feel like farmers are the real allies. If they had the opportunity to do something different, they would do it. And so now that's what we need to be talking about. What is a, what is a system that boxes us all in to monoculture down smaller and smaller areas to look at and our view of the world gets smaller and smaller? What you talk about in your article and our view of the world gets smaller and smaller. What you talk about in your article is basically what we've done around the country and around the world. People who have adopted our national park idea and our wilderness idea, things like that, parks. We have just put, like you say in the article, just grid lines on the map saying, here's farming, here's mountains. And then what we come up with is a map that most people in the country are really far away from these protected lands. Love would love to visit them. And in order to do so, they have to do some pretty expensive travel, not just financial, but to the earth uh, to get there. Right. So that's basically off limits to most people in the country who cannot or will not, or for any other reason, won't travel to Yellowstone, to all these places. So you got that over there. And then somebody before all of us were born said, you know what, this place right here, this is this is where we're not going to have a national park. This is fantastically rich. We're just going to grow on every square inch of this area. And it's okay because you guys have those wilderness areas over there and you have those parks over there and right. you have boundary waters up there. You have all this stuff. So leave this part because we have to feed ourselves. And then they come up with that very good argument. There's all these people. What are they going to eat? And right. then that pretty much shuts down all discussion uh, con you know, constructive or not around the topic, because you can't really argue exactly with that. Um, and you know, somebody's going to go to their grave on, on that issue if you push them on it. <laughs> so end of discussion. And so that's what, that's what this big giant area in the middle of America looks like. It looks like the end of discussion that here we have to feed people and there you can have your park over there. And most of you can't visit it because it's too far away, too expensive to get there, but it's there. Aren't you happy? You wanted wilderness. You wanted all this stuff. And we're saying now, you know, it, it, this whole goal of 30 by 30, 30 by 30 and, and half earth by 2050, it's going to look really, really weird. If there's this giant, giant area in the middle of the United States where none of that really feels represented. 
like it does in the rest of the country. Is right. it really 30 by 30 if this area gets um, continues to be what some people derogatorily call flyover country? You know, uh, it can't be right. It can't really be 30 by 30 if it's not inclusive of what we're doing here in the Midwest. They're talking about a Buffalo bridge across the Mississippi. They're abandoning an old interstate bridge going across the Mississippi. And the idea was thrown out, we should make it a Buffalo bridge because there's areas on both sides of that Mississippi River that could support Buffalo. And I, th I thought about that a lot because I remember originally way back when the Buffalo Commons concept was thrown out that, you know, a lot of this Midwest uh, watershed, Mississippi Washington, is Buffalo country, is, you know, was for a long, 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 thousands of years. And here in, you know, 200 years, you know, we're still, and we're starting to get some Buffalo back. And that's the image that we look in the past back to, oh, there was some Indians out there and there was some Buffalo and all that. But, you know, that was a darn healthy uh, ecosystem that supported more diversity than we can comprehend at this point in time in history here. So I really, uh, the Buffalo thing was a big step for me to realize, you know, that's the scale that we're talking on. And that doesn't mean there aren't people with the Buffalo. It just means there's a lot more Buffalo. And, you know, we got cows and we talk a lot about regenerative agriculture now, and you have to have uh, those large, um, animals on the landscape for to have a healthy uh, landscape that's a great discussion there there's a kind of farming uh, that we haven't we're not even really considering and we need to consider that we need to have that be the discussion because we need animals out there on that landscape to have a healthy soil we've lost well over half our soil they're saying two-thirds of our soil in Iowa here and a little over 100 years they said we lost half of what was here in 50 years it's clear we can't keep mining the soil. And so, you know, what? how do we get the health back to the soil? We can't keep putting artificial uh, stimulants back on here, you know, fertilizer and stuff like that. So we're gonna have to look at this uh, on a larger scale. What other species are necessary for this to go on, to feed us, to take care of us and to take care of the place we love? If you were from another planet and you, came here and you heard people like us talking about rewilding would you believe that we were sincere really truly sincere and 100 on board if we weren't talking about places like iowa and indian wisconsin i mean like i wouldn't i don't think i would in my little spaceship believe a word anybody was saying <laughs> down here on earth if the only places they were talking about were the super richest places and they were using the defense well that's where most of the biodiversity is. And we have limited resources. And that's just a, that's an organizational bureaucratic view of a problem. That's not the whole view. You talk a lot about people in place. It doesn't take a lot of resources for a community to band together and say, hey, we're not going to, we're not going to farm anymore above nine degree um, inclines. And we're not going to farm anymore in these floodplains. We're going to take care of them and restore, help to restore, um, but mostly leave them alone. That doesn't cost a lot. That's not an or say an organization says stuff like, well, we can only dedicate resources to the biological hotspots in the world. And that may be true because they are a bureaucracy. That's their job. But that is not the end of rewilding. You know, right. the, the possibility that's their job. But that is not the end of rewilding. You know, right. the, the possibilities for it. It's it's people on the ground. And, and that's mostly the conversations I've been having so far with people in uh, places like Iowa 
they're talk, they don't talk a lot about governments or big organizations or anything. In fact, I've never had a conversation with that. DNR comes up a lot, but that's so grassroots compared to what yeah. the rest of the country has used, you know, federal legislation. And it's always this great big heady governmental bureaucratic stuff that we always talk about and had to get very good at, you know, working in our favor. But here it's just people on the ground. It's really super grassroots. Well, you, you got to the heart of what Ross and I really struggled on. How do we capsulize this? And then we came up with the be wild, rewild. You know, the individual has to take on some responsibility and go through a transformation of the worldview of what world do they want to live in and how do they think the world should work. And then it's be wild is kind of the living that belief. And so I, I look at Iowa, you know, we're, we're considered pretty darn conservative. We're pretty individualistic. And we can afford to do that because we've got our own private land and we're, you know, able to survive in the economy, growing things and things like that. But in another way, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. It's only when you completely separate yourself from everything else, like the soil and the weather and things like that, that you can maintain that individualistic look at it. And pretty soon you're caught up in the flow of life and, and the bigger picture. And what a wonderful way to live. I mean, I, yeah. that's what I, I think the system gets in our way. These bureaucracies get in our way of very simple understanding of how the world works and where I want to live. <laughs> yeah. Well, another way to look at it is we've had a long time, you know, humans, our puny little lives and our puny little history on this planet. Our idea of long time is, is weird. But, you know, as long as, as bureaucracy and governments have existed, particularly this one in the United States, we've had a long time to see if big governments and things can help us, and you know, achieve this goal by themselves. And I think I think it's time to start including other conversations <laughs> and, and other ideas, because, you know, we can say that that study has been convincingly completed. We are getting exactly whatever we will get from government, from, you know, government, you know, protections and everything else. And, and, it, and it, and it's so whimsical now. I mean, it's every four years, wolves are listed, wolves are delisted, yeah. you know, we, but nature, nature and people like us can't live like that. We can't go four years at a time and then just completely at breakneck turn 180 and go in the other direction. It just doesn't work that way. It's not wild to be, right. you know, going back and forth like that. So there has to be something else, right? How do we measure what's going on on the ground. Like I could ask you now, what are your favorite success stories? It's not like you're starting with a blank sheet of paper in Iowa. You guys have been working for a long time and I know you have stories. I'm seeing um, within the, say the conservation environmental people in Iowa that I know, you know, we've spent most of our careers, most of our lives going, oh my God, here's another, you know, <laughs> they're killing something. They don't, they're not doing, and we fight to save these little places. And I think in the process, we get beat up pretty bad. But when we, I'll take Prairie, for example, because Prairie, the Prairie people I really admire here. The nature's a prairie here. And, and so, but now we've got a lot more Prairie. You know, it's come and and the spreading of the prairie understanding is really grassroots going out because we're going, wait, we don't have monarchs. 
Well, if we put some prairie back, we'd have a place for the monarchs. You know, it changes your uh, understanding of your place in that uh, disturbed habitat. And you realize that disturbances is always going to continue on. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it opens up opportunity. It's like we're having a discussion now about invasive species. And all invasive species aren't bad, you know, in, in a certain sort of way, because some are very quickly uh, transforming that soil to where something else can grow there. And then they kind of die off. And then the, the uh, species that was there previously now has hair previously now has habitat and a healthier soil to come back into. Understanding that flow of life in your place in that flow, you start finding the beauty in a prairie. I'm down on my hands and knees, you know, mm. digging into the thing. I see people out there with these little hand lenses and you don't think they're like lost and just like the Amazon <laughs> looking at yeah. something, you know? You're talking about the smallest thing in the world, getting on your hands. Edward Abbey said something like, until you see a trail of blood from your hands and your knees, you may, you may see something. Yeah. Uh, you may discover something, but right. it's very small. But if you're talking about culture and really reversing this whole idea, this artificial culture that we've made up around grassy lawns and agriculture everywhere and how we do it, non-regenerative agriculture, all that stuff. If we start to change that culture, then all these people on their hands and knees looking for little things and doing little things in their areas where they have influence and little things in their areas where they have influence and, and property and stuff. It, you're also talking about very big things. And I was really into really big wilderness. It, you know, Dave Foreman got me hooked on that with the big outside. He and Howie Wolpert. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going around and measuring up all of the big wilderness areas. And it's like, oh, there's if you put all the Leopold wilderness and the Gila wilderness together, that's over a million acres. If it wasn't right. for that damn road going down the middle <laughs> of them, those are the kinds of things I'm like, I'm a really big thinker. And over the years, I've started thinking, man, I need something bigger because those are all done. There's a lot of other places that could become national parks that could become wilderness areas. And people are fighting that out. I don't need to be directly daily involved in that fight and it's the same thing you know it's it's formulaic and it, you know it follows a process it usually takes way too damn long for everybody involved's patience with it but if you want to go bigger than that and what's bigger than all the national park wilderness areas and everything else the bigger is the smaller the bigger is the people on their hands and knees in areas like Iowa, you know, learning about changing the culture of what it is to be to live in wildness rather than to be people in a human environment. And oh, over there, that's where we keep all the wild stuff. As I was going out the door at the DNR, I, I had to really struggle with what I wanted to put my last few years into. And I wrote a grant. I started the water trails program because I realized in Iowa about what isn't being farmed is the water courses. And so that program is, is just exploded. I mean, it's terrifying. It's hard to get out on the water. There's too many people out there. What are they doing out there? But they're with their hand lanes and they're going down the river. And pretty soon they realize that river, that connection goes, well, here I got to put in up here and I get out down here. And where can I find the least disturbed area along those roads? And pretty soon that's how we got to, you got the driftless area in Northeast Iowa with certain kinds of rivers. 
You've got, I live on the Des Moines River watershed, which drains two thirds of the state of Iowa. And then you've got that Missouri River over on the uh, Western branch. And so people are out there all over exploring these rivers. And then those are the corridors, not only for potential, but for connecting the people down into using their hand lens as they go along the river. <laughs> and so they're learning and it's kind of a upsetting thing to me because it's become such a big thing it's like, oh, wait, the impacts. Oh, my God, now we're going to use the last pieces left. But at the same time, you know, we've been using the last pieces left for a long time. And if we don't start connecting to those pieces with your hand lens or with your mind looking for a river system that's going to connect up Minnesota, uh, the Dakotas, Missouri, Mississippi River, all the way up, like you said, into Canada, all the way down to the Gulf. I mean, we got people traveling those in kayaks and canoes. And, and, and so those are one way of understanding the flow of people across the landscape also. And they're dependent on that biological uh, thing they're searching for, that wildness. And so I, I you know, like I say, I have mixed feelings about it, but another way, I didn't know where else to go to get that understanding of corridors and core, how important those cores, corridors. When I first read that, that was perfect sense to me. Like you said, they form and change my world. <laughs> and yet here I am down onto this little areas, you know, going out. I've got my little magic spots that I go to and boy, are they magic. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're a rewilding detective and, and it's been the biggest challenge of my life because I started out with the sky islands and we had all of these little places to start with, all of these mountains for things to get hit on their way to and fro, these places, but we still had those places. And when I first looked at the Mississippi watershed, particularly in places like Iowa, I'm like, I don't even know where to begin. When I look at this landscape, it's like, how do you tell what was here? How do you look at it? And just without, you know, going into the books and the history and everything else, which you, which you, which would help everyone understand it a lot better it's easy it's it's child's play in the east um a little more difficult but in the west it's comparatively child's play to figure out where connectivity is and where everything goes here we had to rely eventually landed on the the, the river stuff right off the bat well that's the only place they can't farm so dang it that's where it has to start and lo and behold when you start overlaying species richness layers on the maps you start to see that all the species are using the waterways primarily and predominantly that's how everything is getting around. That's when you start overlaying species richness layers on the maps, you start to see that all the species are using the waterways primarily and predominantly that's how everything is getting around. That's not a human uh, in this entire area. There are exceptions, but it's the water. It's all about the water. And if you really start looking at it from that and you see maps on our site and your site, uh, you start to see, you really start to focus in on a place based on, okay, where's the water first, first and foremost. Right. And in some places like in Iowa, that's the only thing you can look at. Otherwise you're looking at beans, <laughs> you know, and corn and uh, not having any idea what was there and, and what should be there, what could be there. Uh, right. But when you start looking at the water, everything changes and it really has helped. The other thing that Dave Foreman came up with right off the bat, when we were talking about this in the early times before we knew each other, before we really knew the Iowa folks and others, he's like, well, we're going to have to look at flyways. You know, <laughs> Audubon's got this big extensive map network of, of flyways for birds. 
And they'll, they'll show you the dots on the map where they like to land, where they go water, where they rest between their very, you know, on their very, very long journeys. And that will begin to start putting them together. And it was just really weird to start thinking about a, a connectivity design based on relatively flimsy evidence, like the, the water and birds. Like we used to just, we did this with mountains, like the spine yeah. of the continent. It's obvious what we needed to start <laughs> with, you know, and we just got, and then this highway cuts in between. We need an overpass here and bam, you're done, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's yeah. not that easy out there. I don't want to, the work was very, very hard, continues to be very hard uh, work, but, but this is, this is different and it's a neat challenge. And I've come around full circle and I now understand it is so easily <laughs> you yeah. just have to understand the layers and you, you got to know where to start and there seems to be always a way to start even in places where there's no evident you know there's no national park wilderness or or you know big chunks of private wildland or anything it, we just had to learn a whole new vocabulary we have and we are continuing we're at the very beginning of our journey of doing that and a new way of looking at land and if it can be rewilded here, there is literally no place on the planet that cannot be successfully rewilded. That's right. And here and there is the same place. I mean, that, that, that's what yeah. you know, I'm being in Heartland. Every time I wanted to go somewhere, I'd go head east or head west. I didn't like going east too much, but I head west. It's just a funny way of looking at, you know, think like you mentioned, your environmental impact of having to go somewhere else, <laughs> you know, kind of negates the going. In, in, a, in another sort of way. And so I, I don't see just the flyway. I think of, you mentioned the flyway. I think of all the birds that depend on the corn and the beans as they make their migrations, because mm. that's the harvest period. And so it's not all, again, negative. You know, something has been provided out there for them to uh, use to further their thing. It's like building an interstate, you know, and you want rest areas. Well, the whole dang thing's the road. The whole corridor is the Mississippi watershed. You have to start thinking in those terms. And then you have pockets where different things are done, but only in that bigger understanding of whether you call it a flyway or the watershed itself, that's the flow of life. That's what supports all of it. The rest areas, everything. And so I think that understanding is starting to sink in. And that's what I, I'm so lucky to have stumbled onto the rewilding people and the wildlands network. All that. It just gave me a way to step out of all the depression and death around me and, and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the best place you could possibly be. It's, it has the highest potential to bring back uh, diversity of life. Well, if you're trying to figure out what the heck Mark's passion is all really about, the best thing you can do is go to the wildest place in the world on rewilding.org. You can just look that up. You can type it into Google and it'll actually show up in the top 10, which is going to blow <laughs> people's minds. I can't wait till teachers start calling us. My, my <laughs> students are finding your article about Iowa and I tried to give them an assignment. <laughs> Definitely check it out because I, Mark, your article is getting rave reviews. Every single person on the board and staff have mentioned something about your article. And we get a lot of articles on rewilding. The fact that we're even talking about this right now is progress because for so, as you know, for so, so many decades, everybody was just like, oh yeah, that's where all our food comes from as they flew over it. 
Well, yeah. you know, I just feel so lucky to be a, you guys have all been part of my growing up and my understanding of where I live and everything so much. Uh, the rewilding has been, you know, if you got to talk hope, man, that sums it all up. And I don't need much else than that to really get me through all the other stuff and that to really get me through all the other stuff. stuff. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.